It's a cold April morning in the suburbs of London. With the golden arches aglow in the background and their breath visible in the cold air, here they were, a strange gang-like group huddled at a McDonald's parking lot. You have representatives from the FBI, you have prosecutors from the US Justice Department, you have some British cops from Scotland Yard that are there to kind of help coordinate the whole thing. It's six o'clock in the morning and you know, at that point in time, they don't know what they're going to meet. They're preparing for a sting of a high-target white-collar criminal. Imagining they'll pull up to an obnoxiously huge house, multi-car garage full of expensive cars that the owner probably never drives. But what they found was not that at all. They pull up outside a very standard, ordinary-looking, suburban, terraced home with a satellite dish and a plastic porch. And then this short Asian guy with a beard, old guy, answers the door and shouts upstairs to his son, who's asleep. You know, Navinda, there's some people here to see you. And Nav, a couple of minutes later, pads down the stairs in his tracksuit bottoms, his hair everywhere, half asleep. Uh, and that's when they read him his rights. His parents, his friends, his neighbors, the mailman, no one knew that this skinny dude in the sloppy tracksuit and morning hair was accused of having brought the global financial markets to its knees. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a new series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest cheating scandals in history, in popular culture, in sport, finance, no stone left unturned. Some stories you may have heard about, and plenty others you won't have. We'll talk to the people involved, Meet the cheats, and each week we'll attempt to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Just a little while ago, I remember looking at my phone to find my news feed full of articles talking about one company. No way you could have avoided this story over the past few days. GameStop. 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 We're set to continue their head-spinning ascent today. Shares and I'm thinking, what's the big deal? It's just a store I'd go to to get video games for my nephew. Turns out, a group of small-time traders got together on Reddit, bought the stock of this failing chain of video game stores, raised the price and made a killing. Amid an ongoing battle between bullish day traders... Which spoiled the plans of some of the biggest hedge funds in the world. It's a classic... David versus Goliath story... That raises a lot of questions like, exactly how fair is the playing field of finance? And who are these cheats in all of this? Is it the folks trying to beat the big money fat cats at their own game? Or is it the fat cats themselves who rigged the market in their favor? But GameStop isn't the first time the little guy has made a mockery of the market. Just a few years ago, another young trader went down in folklore. To some, he was a hero, 
a Robin Hood character with no regard for the system. To others, a reckless lawbreaker who was maybe responsible for wiping $1 trillion off the global financial markets. The story of how this one enigmatic dude got all of this fame and notoriety really begins in 2010. It's just two years after the global financial crisis and the markets are volatile. But it's not just the markets. You had riots on the streets of Greece. There was a, a, an election in the UK. And we are saying the Conservatives are the largest party. Uh, there was some really bad economic data out of the US. So all of these kind of swirling macroeconomic factors were contributing to create a lot of fear in the market and also to push prices down that day. This is Liam Vaughan. I'm the author of the book Flash Crash, A Trading Savant, A Global Manhunt, and The Most Mysterious Market Crash in History. On May 6, 2010, Liam was working as an investigative journalist for Bloomberg. His office floor was calm that day. Everyone was pretty used to these doomsday predictions as a hangover from the financial crisis. People were at their desks, organizing their days, thinking about the stories they were going to cover. The clocks read 2.41 p.m. New York, 7.41 p.m. London, 2.41 a.m. Hong Kong. And then exactly a minute later, the financial markets fall faster and more aggressively than they ever have before. No, there is fear. This is capitulation, really. I mean, it is classic So over the space of the next four minutes, a trillion dollars is lost from global financial markets. There's total panic. People are freaking out because the only reference they have is the stock market crash of 2008 when it seemed like the world was going to hell in a handbag. And everybody's yelling the same thing. What the hell just happened? What the heck is going on down here? What had happened is the biggest and fastest financial crash in, in the history of markets. A few hundred miles away in Washington, D.C., the Commodity and Futures Trading Commission is beginning to fill up with people. Yeah, I mean, there was just sort of talk amongst everybody, right? Like, you know, did you hear what happened? You know, the, the enforcement division and really the whole agency was sort of a buzz. That's Jessica Harris, one of the leading investigators into market manipulation. I mean, we've seen shocks to markets since then, but this, at this magnitude and and at this time, it really was one of a kind and, and, and a first. News of the crash had hit them, and they immediately knew this wasn't a normal day on the markets. It wasn't just investors getting spooked, which is what usually causes a market crash. Everything happened too fast for that to be the case. Something else must have caused this. And so Jessica and her team began to investigate. There are all kinds of theories, like the fat finger theory. Basically, someone pressed the wrong button when inputting a trade. You know, like your thumb hitting the O instead of the I on your cell phone when you're sending a text message. But all of these theories lead nowhere. Fast forward a couple of years and they still have nothing. The investigation reaches a dead end and everyone just sort of accepts that they'll never know what happened. Then suddenly, Jessica's phone rings. I believe I was in 2012 
And I had gotten a call from an attorney in our Kansas City office. She had called because, you know, she had received some data sets, um, financial data sets, for those days on and around the flash crash. And it's what was in those data sets that was about to blow the case wide open. Info that suggested all this might be because of one guy. We'll tell you his story after the break. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first time I heard about Navinda Sorrell, I was working as a journalist in 2015 when he got arrested. That's Liam Vaughn again. In 2015, he was working at Bloomberg in the newsroom. You know, gradually as that day went on and we found out more about him, the story just became more and more bizarre. The Bloomberg office was full of urgent phone calls. Journalists were calling pretty much anyone they knew asking for tips, insights, anything. But it was Liam that got assigned to the story. Um, and so I was set to work trying to write up a profile of, of Nav. And so he started trying to find out more about this guy, about who he was and where he came from. So Navinda Singh Sarau was quite an ordinary kid in a lot of ways. He is a first-generation immigrant, Sikh parents, came from the Punjab in India. And Nav is the youngest of three boys. Nav grew up in an area of London not known for its glitz or its glamour. To get there from the center, you drive an hour past Buckingham Palace, along the River Thames, passing Grand Chelsea Mansions, until you hit the Westway, a highway dominated by business parks and concrete. Travel down there for a bit, and then you get to Hounslow. Their house is literally below the Heathrow flight path, so kind of every five minutes... You can't hear anyone talking. (laughs) And you can look up and you can literally count the number of windows in the planes because they're flying that close by. So look, this guy Nav, he lived a pretty normal childhood. He loved soccer and playing sports with his brothers, but he also was blessed with a gift most of us wished we had, a photographic memory. So he had this amazing ability for recall and for mental arithmetic. He also loved video games. And I mean loved. He was like a beast at them. And so at one point in time, he was like 700th in the world at FIFA. So you have to understand, FIFA is a soccer video game that's like a religion. It's huge around the world, with millions of players and tournaments that award over $4 million in prize money. These gamers, they take it very seriously. He would sort of sit there 
for day, you know, for days at a time with very little sleep, just perfecting this game until he was the absolute best at it. So this was Nav. Clever, obsessive, and really, really good at video games. But he didn't really have a sense of what he was going to do with his life. And then he goes to college and he meets someone who in an instant will change everything for him. Like all students, he's got no money. And, you know, by the middle of term, they're all kind of eating beans on toast. And one of their fellow students has always got money. And one day Nav turns around and he asks this guy, like, why is it you've always got such expensive clothes? And the guy says, I'm a trader. This is the moment that would send Nav's life in a totally different direction. And he had no idea. And this was like the height of the dot-com boom. Which is quite reminiscent (laughs) of where we are in the markets at the moment, where, you know, lots of people that were kind of amateurs were having a go and were making money in the markets. And so Nav decides that he's going to start looking into this. And it's at that point that he starts transferring maybe his obsessive interest, you know, things like FIFA and football into the markets. He basically starts playing the stock market, buying and selling shares. He's trying to make a little money for himself, real entry-level stuff. And then one day he's unemployed, living back at home with his parents, and he opens the Evening Standard newspaper and there's an advert in there and it says, wanted futures traders must work well under pressure. Must work well under pressure. Sounds pretty typical of a trading company, right? I bet you have a certain image in your head. What most people might recognize from movies like Wall Street or trading places where it's lots of blokes in colorful jackets shouting at each other in a room, buy, buy, sell, sell. Well, this is 2004, and trading is now done on computers, so there's no longer the need for everyone to be in the same place. You know, uh, nobody knows who you are. It doesn't matter how big or how loud you are. You're just a guy behind a screen. Which means the game becomes less about bravado and more about brains. Who can analyze patterns, think fast with a click of a mouse, and keep pace with the steady stream of numbers cascading down the computer screen? This is the kind of firm Nav reads about in the paper. It's called Futex. And in 2004, it opens an office on the outskirts of London in a place that's like 45 minutes away from the kind of skyscrapers that you might imagine of high finance. This is like more like an internet cafe above a a supermarket. So Nav makes his way across London to Futex for a recruitment day. And Nav goes along there and and there's quite a rigorous recruitment process. And he sort of turns up in in an ill-fitting suit and he struggles to make eye contact with the guys that own it. But he also has obviously got something about him. You know, not only is he able to answer the kind of mental arithmetic type questions incredibly quickly, but when they ask him what he wants to do, he turns around and he says he wants to have more money than Warren Buffett. Uh, And they kind of laugh and he doesn't laugh. (laughs) And so they decide they're going to take a chance on him. And Nav joins the new generation of traders at the firm. One thing that connected them all, I guess, is that none of them probably would have got a job at J.P. Morgan or one of the main investment banks, you know, where it was incredibly competitive and it was about who you knew. They were outsiders, misfits, and they wanted to win. So Nav started working there, and immediately he begins to set himself apart from the rest. He 
found it very hard to concentrate when there was so much noise around him. So fairly quickly, he decided to move his computer to a completely separate desk from everyone else at the back of the room by the toilets, where he would sit there with some kind of ear defenders of the kind that road users might use. And this guy, he would just sit there trading for eight or nine hours a day. Maybe occasionally getting up to drink some milk out of the jug. All day, sitting at his computer, up to drink milk. And then would get back to trading. And repeat. If you're just sitting in essentially an internet cafe an hour away from the city, you're entirely reliant on your own wits. And it's really, really hard to succeed. In fact, most of the recruits at Futex ended up leaving in their first year. But Nav was determined, and he had a gift. And so he almost became like this legendary, enigmatic figure. You know, especially the new recruits, they were a bit afraid to even say hello to. He would turn up to the office in a, in a moped and would, you know, do ridiculous things. Like he would forget to take off his helmet. And so he would start trading with his helmet on his head. Imagine being in the office and your coworker is wearing a motorcycle helmet at his desk. But it wasn't just his weird behavior that set Nav apart. So he would accumulate, you know, very large amounts of money, and then he was willing to put it all on the line if he thought that a bet was correct. And sometimes it wasn't, but he was fine with that. You know that part of your brain, that voice in your mind that tells you not to do something? That really didn't exist for Nav. And now he was making serious money, but he was also getting restless. Nav is never really happy. He always wants more. He knew there was a world beyond Futex. And eventually Nav walks out the door for the last time with two million pounds in his pocket. It's now 2008. And the world is in the middle of a financial crisis. Lehman Brothers suffering a spectacular downfall. You know, the biggest banks in the world are collapsing and, and getting bought. At one point this year, sold for $67 a share. Right now, it's trading at just $3. The U.S. stock market is at its lowest point in more than a decade. And Nav decides, listen, it's only got one way to go. And he decides that he's going to put almost everything that he's earned up until that point on the line. $3 million of his own money on a feeling. Within a couple of days, the US government announces this big bazooka trillion dollars into the market, and sure enough, the market starts to rise. He just keeps putting more and more on the table. Over a period of a week or so, the market rises by, I think it's 19%, and Nav has turned his $2 million into $15 million. So now Nav is in the big leagues. I mean, the fact that he held his nerve after he was proved correct and he just kept betting more and more money on the markets rising, this dude is like a legend. Nav's broker contacts Nav shortly after this winning and says to him, congratulations, mate, that's incredible. And the broker says, what are you going to do with the money, Nav? And he turns around and he says, I'm going to trade with it. No holiday, no expensive watch, no new house. And so the only thing that he buys is he buys like a second-hand Golf. Basically, it's a dirt-cheap Volkswagen. <laughs> so he just made 15 million quid and he buys a second-hand Golf and he uses it a few times, gets some speeding tickets, and then he leaves it to rust on his, uh, on his brother's driveway for the next few years. You wouldn't know it by his rusty little car, but Nav really was at the top of his game at this point. He was a model trader 
hardworking, risk-averse, acting on instinct. He had the markets figured out. But just as Nav begins to make serious money, another force enters the market that changed the game forever. Starting in about 2007 and 2008, you have the rise of this new breed of market participant that came to be known as HFT, or high-frequency traders. So these high-frequency traders use computers just like NAV does. But unlike NAV, they don't act on instinct. They rely on algorithms, a pre-written set of instructions that determine their every move. They're looking at orders coming into and leaving the markets, and they're uh, passing that information using incredibly fast technology, and then they're placing trades much faster than anyone else can. Okay, so hold up. Why does it matter that they're placing trades faster than anyone else? You see, in the old days, the trading floor was full of people, buying and selling. It was loud, physical. If you pushed in front of someone to make a trade, chances are you get a better deal. That's because in the world of the market, there's a basic law. The fastest person will always win. Then computers came in and upped the ante. Now you can make an infinite amount of trades at once, buying and selling in an instant, a click of a button. And then comes high-frequency traders who took things one step further. They used computers and built algorithms that meant human beings didn't need to be involved in this process at all. So how does this work? Okay, let's say a company. We'll make up a fake one and call it Dupaloop. Dupaloop. Over time, the stock price of Dupaloo rises and falls for different reasons. As a human stockbroker, you read articles and reports that tell you what's going on with the company. That info helps you decide when to buy and sell Dupaloo stock. But the problem with humans is, we are slow. It takes time to figure out the markets. The stock market is a race. If you can process info and make the right decision faster than everyone else, you make more money. Well, these supercomputers in high-frequency trading basically do what humans do, but in a fraction of a second. So while the human stockbroker is reading an article about fraud at Dupaloo, the algorithms that the computers are using are already reacting to what's going on automatically. They buy Dupaloo stock as soon as it dips, then they resell it for a profit when it bounces back. This technique relies on lightning-fast speed. In fact, Speed became so vital that rival companies would buy real estate next door to the New York Stock Exchange to house their servers so their trades wouldn't have to travel so far. This is almost like a kind of revolutionary way to make money in financial markets. They sort of almost eradicated one of the fundamental tenets of, of investing, which is that you have to take risk. Pretty quickly, these companies become the dominant players on the trading scene. They're raking in billions of dollars with their super-fast algorithms. It might seem like cheating, but technically, they're not breaking any rules. But this new tech, it drives Nav crazy. It's like instead of him playing a video game against one person, he's taking on an army of souped-up robots, and they have a special weapon that he doesn't have. And so, he goes online. He writes on this forum, has anyone noticed how the markets are becoming increasingly dominated by HFT? There's lots of cheating going on. And, you know, this is bullshit and we should do something about it. So at this point, Nav is pissed. To him, by using these algorithms, they aren't playing fair. 
This is outright cheating. Trade like a real broker. And it's not just him who thinks this. As the author Michael Lewis says, the U.S. stock market is now a class system rooted in speed of haves and have-nots. The haves pay for nanoseconds. The have-nots have got no idea that a nanosecond has value. And so NAV wants to do something about it, to tackle the speed of the high-frequency traders. And then three days later, he writes on this forum, forget that, I've decided I'm going to join them, I'm going to build an algorithm of my own. And when he says join them, he actually means he's going to take them on. He's going to beat the high-frequency traders at their own game. So Nav has this brainwave where he's like, well, if I just lie about what the market's about to do... This is what's known as spoofing. It's like bluffing in poker. You say you're going to do one thing when actually you're about to do the other. So if I place a load of sell orders into the market, get the robots to react get the market to fall, and then I cancel my orders before anyone actually hits them, then I can essentially move the market at will. And so he writes to a a computer developer and he gets them to build a fairly rudimentary algorithm of his own. And brilliantly, he calls it the nav trader. He names this thing after himself. And from the moment nav starts using this algorithm, he starts winning. He very quickly is able to make six-figure sums and more in a day from trading. And so there's a period in 2010 where he one day turns it on and makes $500,000 in a day. So you have to understand, at this point, Nav is making so much money that he starts to get the attention from regulators. Because actually what he's doing is not really within the rules. In 2010, the U.S. government passed something called the Dodd-Frank Act. There is a lot of head-scratching about the rise of these new super-fast trading firms. And the act tried to draw a line between legitimate and illegitimate forms of algorithmic trading. And spoofing became a target. And so one day, Nav is at his computer. He gets an email from his broker saying, there's been some inquiries from the exchange because they've noticed that you've been placing and cancelling huge numbers of orders. And Nav, in a moment that's now sort of etched in financial law, turns around and tells the exchange to kiss my ass. This dude clearly doesn't care because he just doubles down. The next day, he makes $850,000. You remember the house under the flight path that Nav still lives in? It's probably worth half that. And the day after that, he makes $900,000. I mean, he's making more money than the soccer players he idolizes on FIFA. And suddenly he's gone from being fairly wealthy to literally making as much money as the biggest hedge funds in the world at that point. So just think about it. There's this socially awkward kid who hated noise and began trading only a few years before. Next to toilets in an office above a supermarket. And now he's making millions of dollars a month. And then one day, on May 6, 2010, everything changed. That's coming up after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. On May 6th, 2010, Nav sat there working in his bedroom with the Nav trader in full swing. And he notices that the market is falling. He spots an opportunity to make some money. He can't see it recovering for a while, so he starts placing huge amounts of sell orders. He's effectively banking on the fact that the market is going to keep falling. 1.41 p.m. in the U.S., Nav decides that he's going to turn his computer off. Maybe his mom had called called him for dinner or something. It turns out that Nav, a millionaire stock trader, still lives with his parents. And his mom still takes care of his meals. He heads downstairs. And then exactly a minute later, the financial markets fall faster and more aggressively than they ever have before. Capitulation, really. I mean, it is classic capitulation. There is fear in this market. So over the space of the next four minutes, a trillion dollars is lost from global financial markets. But then, something remarkable happened. It's a fast the market was so down 900 points, we're now down 680. The markets recovered. In just 30 minutes, they bounced back to pretty much where they started. And so, you know, if you'd gone away for a, a coffee, and come back an hour later, you might have missed the whole thing. In fact, by the time Nav switched his computer back on, the whole thing was over. The fastest financial crash in the history of the markets, and he wasn't even there to witness it. As you can imagine, a thing like this doesn't go unnoticed in the trading world. A lot of investors lost huge sums of money that day. Some people would have lost their jobs. And this is where Jessica Harris comes back in the investigator we heard from at the top of the show. The regulator she works for filed a report that this was just a result of a clumsy trade that inadvertently sent a volatile market tumbling. And then two years later in 2012, Jessica received this phone call about a tip from a whistleblower. She had called because, you know, she had received some data sets, financial data sets. Turns out this whistleblower is a trader like Nav who just so happens to be testing some new software on the day of the flash crash. And as he's going back through what happened that day using this new you know, software that he's got, he notices that there's these huge blocks of sell orders, literally like $200 million of sell orders entering the futures markets and then being cancelled a few minutes later. Ah, uh, what Jessica was beginning to realise was that What happened that day was very different from what she thought at first. Before, she'd believed the crash was caused by a number of big firms all selling at the same time. But now she understood. This was one person sending out a massive volume of trades all at once, causing mass panic in the markets. But who was this trader? Like, where are his accounts? Is he still trading? If so, what's he doing? I'm sure Jessica's thinking that this must be a big player. And so we identified where he held his account. 
And at that time, his account was at MF Global. So once we received that data, you know, it sort of became clear or clearer who that person was, where he lived, the amount of equity in his account. Mm, Jessica still isn't fully sure, though. And so she tries one more thing. She reaches out to the trader over email. What are you trading? How do you trade? He responded back to us and basically described himself as a, you know, kind of point-and-click trader. Essentially a one-man band, a lone manual trader. This struck Jessica as something that's extremely weird. The, the, the timing of his, you know, order and cancellations seemed very fast for somebody who was only manual. Jessica recognizes this kind of speed. She knows it from years of looking at high-frequency traders. He's using an algorithm. Right then, she knew this was the guy. This trader working all on his own without the help of a big financial institution or trading firm. That trader's name? Navinder Singh Sarau. At some point, the DOJ and FBI got involved and they launched their own investigation. And that's how an alliance of international law enforcement end up knocking on the door of a suburban terrorist home in Hounslow. And then this short Asian guy with a beard, old guy, answers the door and shouts upstairs to his son, who's asleep. Uh, you know, Navinda, there's some people here to see you. And Nav, a couple of minutes later, pads down the stairs in his you know, in his tracksuit bottoms, his hair everywhere, half asleep. And that's when they read him his rights. He turns around to the police officer and says, wait a second, bruv, I need to run upstairs and record a football match that's on tonight. <laughs> and the police officer says, you know, I don't think you're going to have much time to watch that son, to be honest. And he was absolutely right. Nav wouldn't set foot back in his house for another four months. And so Nav was handcuffed and put into the back of a police van. With his face pressed up against the window, he watched the cops enter the house he's lived and worked in his entire life. They get let upstairs to Nav's bedroom and it basically looks like a 12-year-old's room. There's like a single bed which has got a soft toy on it. There's a load of computer games. There's a signed autograph thing of Lionel Messi, who's his favourite football player. And then there at the end of the bed is a computer with two monitors and a fairly standard internet connection. And at that point, they're just as confused as, as you know, the, the world would be when they hear about this story to find that the guy that they've been tracing for the last year that's made all this money and that's made such an impact on the markets is basically operating out of a, a sort of teenager's bedroom in suburbia. But here he was, and as they started to go through the evidence in the house, their case against him only got stronger. They get hold of his computer, and there is a kind of moment which is like a eureka moment for the prosecutors when they discover that Nav has actually been recording himself trading over a period of years. Normally, when we're investigating something, it's a, it's a paper trail, right? So we're following the paper trail. And maybe you have some emails, right? Like maybe you have a smoking gun email. We have this guy on tape 
like filming himself. Okay, so this is where Nav got caught slipping. I mean, Cheating 101 tells you that you are never to film yourself. He was doing it because he was showing the regulators and the exchange what he believed was other people cheating. So while Nav was thinking he's building a case against the high-frequency traders this whole time, he's actually gathering evidence on his own spoofing. To have somebody videotape or video themselves essentially committing a crime, right, was, was highly unusual. And so at that point, the prosecutor's case suddenly went from pretty strong to incredibly strong. Yeah, at this point, Nav's legal team knew he was fighting a losing battle. His lawyer approached the authorities to wave the white flag. He says, listen, Nav's willing to, to plead guilty to some of these counts uh, if you'll show some leniency, so why don't we come up with a deal? And the deal, essentially, is that Nav will plead guilty, but he will show them everything he knows about how to cheat in the markets. He starts to teach them all he knows about market manipulation, spoofing, and the high-frequency traders. And it's almost like, you know, sort of a Wall Street version of Catch Me If You Can, if you like, where, you know, Nav, this guy who's been doing this thing, really just for the hell of it, for, for a laugh, and not really for the, for the profits, becomes incredibly useful because... At that point, the rise of HFT was fairly recent. All these regulators were very much behind the curve, and suddenly he's opening their eyes to what they should be looking for to identify other people that are cheating. But I guess what I really want to know from Liam is, was Nav cheating? And was he aware of it? I mean, here's this young guy who's freakishly gifted in math and is good at gaming. Is trading not just a game that hedge funds play using people's money in a competition to beat their competitors and just make more money? So, did he cheat? Or did he just figure out the game and beat the big boys at it? The question of did he cheat is, is a complex one. You know, there's the law, and according to the letter of the law, he did spoof. And I have a sympathy for him in the sense that the spoofing rules were, were only just coming into play as he was trading. Um, but he was given kind of warnings that what he was doing was, was breaching lines. And I think at that point, if he dialed back and stopped, then you could have said that he was just unfortunate. But the fact that he sort of put his pedal to the metal and said, screw it, I'm just going to do it even more, means that, yes, by the letter of the law, he did cheat. But for Liam... While Nav did break the rules, he thinks there's actually a bigger form of cheating going on here. The more interesting question is like, does the whole market cheat? And really, a lot of what high-frequency trading is, is about finding loopholes in the way that the market is structured and trying to capitalize on those to make as much money as possible from other people. And if you look at it through that lens, that's really what Nav was doing. The only difference is that he didn't have good lawyers and compliance officers that could tell him exactly where the lines were. He was sort of winging it as he went along. But what about the crash? Was Nav responsible? So it's pretty clear that Nav didn't intend to crash the market. You know, throughout this whole thing, his goal was to make as much money as possible and to sort of get off without anyone really noticing. To Nav, this was just like gaming. Who can set the highest score or top the leaderboard? It just so happened that the market conditions that day 
coalesced in such a way that his trading, at least according to the Justice Department, ended up having a sort of outsized impact. So in January 2020, Nav boards a plane to Chicago to be sentenced. He's pleading guilty to charges of spoofing and market manipulation. There he sat in the courtroom, this young guy from Hounslow, thousands of miles away from his family and friends. Was he about to go to jail? The decision was all down to the judge. And so she tells Nav that he can serve a year of house arrest. (sighs) You remember when Nav switched sides and gave all of his trade secrets to the authorities? Well, turns out it worked out for him. Two months later, the entire world was placed into lockdown. Essentially, his punishment was to to see out his sentence in exactly the same way as as you or me, (laughs) stuck in his house. You could say Nav got away with it. But some might say he suffered enough over the years. What is clear, though, is that NAV isn't your typical criminal. A lot of our cases, especially with the fraud cases, there's kind of like an obvious motivation, and that's money. And you see what they're doing with the money, and it's like buying houses and buying, you know, cars and going on these lavish vacations and whatever. NAV, NAV was not doing those things that, like, a typical fraudster does with his money. I think one of the interesting things about Nav's story is how resonant it is today. You know, you have this kid in his bedroom who takes on the might of the established firms and finds a way to beat them. And a couple of years later, that's very much the narrative with the Robin Hood traders, where you have inexperienced and maybe smaller market participants clubbing together in a deliberate attempt to take on some of the biggest and and most well-funded and best-connected institutions. The Robin Hood traders, these traders who took on the hedge funds over GameStop, they set out to beat some of the richest people in the world at their own game. And in some small way, Nav, this nerdy kid in his parents' bedroom in Hounslow, this kid who saw the market as akin to the video games he loved so much when he was younger, he was the inspiration. Maybe he wasn't quite Robin Hood, but his story is one that could tell us a lot about the world we live in now. One of the things that I think comes across from Nav's story is that trying to sort of superimpose a sense of morality on a system which is ultimately set up without morality in mind (laughs) is difficult. And so you have to rely on somebody making up the rules. And the rules may be arbitrary, but that's the best, you know, best that we've got. Hey, good people, just before we go, don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get them. And not that you're going to do it because we ask, but it helps if you leave us a rating and a review as well. Next time on Cheat, we take you back to one of the most shameful fights in boxing history. I mean, his eyes, above his eyes, on his eyelids, and below his eyes, both eyes, turned totally black and blue during the fight. And it looked like he was not being hit by gloves. It looked like he was being hit by a baseball bat. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. 
Our series editor is Joe Sykes. The executive producer is Tom Koenig. The original idea was developed by Tom Fuller, engineering sound design and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah Delarue. And a big thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Ella McLeod, Dasha Litsitsina, Chris Skinner, and Arlie Adlington. <laughs>